Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the True Condos Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew LaFleur. You may know me from truecondos.com, or maybe you've read some of my articles in New Condo Guide magazine, or maybe you've never heard of me and that's okay. The point is that if you're interested in learning more about the Toronto condo market and investing in condos, you've come to the right place. The True Condos podcast is a chance to hear from experts and industry insiders about what's really going on in the condo market, and sometimes we even find out where these insiders are putting their own money when it comes to condo investing. We cut through all the fluff and deliver the straight goods. So if you're a condo investor, this information will help you make better decisions and better decisions will help you make more money. This podcast is 100% free, but I just have one favor to ask of you, the listener. If you like what you hear and if you want to support me to keep doing more episodes, please, please, please go to iTunes and leave a review. It really helps get the show out there and more people will be able to find it if you leave me a great review. So thank you and I really appreciate it. Okay, so let's go down with it, shall we? For the very first episode of the True Condos podcast, I'm really excited that I have on the show Jennifer Keysmat. Jennifer is the chief planner of the city of Toronto and in a very real way, Jennifer's leadership and her vision affects every single condo building in the city, both existing or planned condos. So if you're a condo investor in Toronto, it's very important to start at the top to look at the big picture. So listen to what Jennifer has to say about what direction the city is going, what the city's priorities are, and start thinking about how you as a condo investor can take advantage of the city's growth plans. All right, so here it is, my interview with Jennifer Keysmat. Enjoy. Okay, thanks very much for, for being on the interview today. Really appreciate your time, Jennifer. My pleasure. It's great to have you on. Um, So why don't we start by, if you could tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get into planning? Why are you so passionate about planning? And maybe just give us a bit of insight into who you are and what you do. Well, it's kind of funny. I really fell into planning by accident, uh, simply because I love cities. And I graduated with a degree in English and philosophy. And once I graduated, I was like, hmm. Now what do I do? I thought I wanted to go into law, uh, but I spent a summer working in my uncle's law office and very quickly realized I had no interest in law. I did a lot of filing, to be fair, but still, I just didn't like the competitive process. The competitive nature of, of law didn't interest me. And it was during that time, I was trying to figure out what came next in my life. I was at a party, and I met someone, and we were talking about a whole variety of different issues, and he looked at me, and he said, are you a city planner? And I looked back at him and said, what's a city planner? I had no idea. Like, I had no idea at all what a city planner is. And so at that point, uh, he suggested I go away and read Jane Jacobs' uh, seminal book, The um, Death and Life of Great American Cities. And I did. I went away and read the book. And I decided to take some courses at the School of Community and Regional Planning at UBC. Okay. uh, Because I was living out in Vancouver at the time. And... When I walked in that school, I felt like I was home. 
I thought, this is it. This is, I belong here. These are my people, these planners. My husband likes to call us nerdy planners. Uh, and that's totally me, 100%. Uh, very, very nerdy planners. Um, so that was how I ended up stumbling upon planning as a profession. And from that point forward, really getting engaged in planning as a professional. I went and undertook my master's degree in planning. And following that, I started up my own firm. I'm an entrepreneur. Started up my own company with uh, two other young, keen, idealistic planners. And we grew our practice and eventually became a national practice with four offices uh, across Canada. Um, we, we merged with a couple other um, disciplines, engineering and architecture in order to create a new company called Dialogue. And uh, and that's where I was when I was recruited into, into this position. So that's a very short snapshot of okay. my journey into planning. That's great. And what are you, I know you're, you're, as a chief planner of Toronto, your focus is on a lot of different things, but what are you, in terms of right now, what are you most passionate about? What are you most excited about in terms of what you're working on right now? Well, there's so much going on that that question can go in a million different directions and quite frankly would change from day to day. Uh, but I'm, I'm very excited about the work that we're doing around transit planning and reorganizing how we undertake transit planning to ensure that we're meeting our city building objectives. That's been a really key piece of work for me and it is very exciting. I'm very excited about uh, what we're calling Reset TO, which is the development permit system. And it's all about shifting from site-by-site -site planning to neighborhood-based planning, right. focusing on how we ensure that as we're changing and growing, that we're also planning for all of the critical infrastructure needs, parks, uh, play spaces, spaces for dogs, community amenities, employment lands, how we're ensuring that we have the right critical mix mm -hmm. to be creating places across this vast geographical area known as Toronto where people can live and work within their neighborhoods. That's great. Um, now, within that, uh, I know that you deal a lot with condo developers, and obviously this podcast is about con the condo market and, and investing in condos. So... Um, what do you in terms? What do you like about what you see in the condo industry or the condo market right now? What's what's good about it? And on the flip side, what do you wish would change, or where do you see areas of concern in the condo industry or the condo market? Well, one of the areas I'm very excited about is uh, I think we are beginning to see some real innovation. And I might be seeing it, and you might not yet be seeing it because I'm seeing it at the application stage. Uh, but we're beginning to see some real innovation with respect to our new buildings that are coming forward. Uh, we have a new developer in town who's here from Vancouver who has a project that uh, he wants to make greener than green. He's interested in really looking at incredible innovations around green technologies, geothermal, district energy. He's really trying to push the envelope. I see that as being extremely exciting because it's, of course, critical to our future. Uh, so we have innovation on the green side, the green technology side, but we also have innovation on the architecture side. We have some very interesting mid-rise buildings, for example, and I think that's very exciting and is going to lead to a housing typology that really improves uh, quality of life and enhances quality of life in the city. Mm, that's great. And uh, again, on the flip side, is there... Is there anything that, any big concerns that you have about the condo market? Or are there any uh, red flags or any, 
Any areas of, uh, of challenge that you're, that you're seeing in, with the condo market? Well, right I think now? the biggest challenge is from my perspective, uh, which is an ongoing challenge in any environment that's growing very, very quickly, is ensuring that we're building for longevity, that the buildings we're building are going to be 100 year, here 100 years from now. What does a 100-year building look like? What criteria do you look for? Well, I'll just say this is something I'm concerned about. I don't think it's something that we, we evaluate very well. And in part, uh, there's the planning work that we do in city planning around identifying where the buildings go, what the massing should be, what the open space should be, how they integrate into the larger infrastructure in the city. And then there's actually the building itself. And that's regulated by the Ontario Building Code. And we make recommendations or suggestions right. to the province all the time in yes. terms of how we'd like to see the building ch code change. Right. But it's not something that we have jurisdiction to, to change ourselves because it is provincial regulation. So I just want to qualify what I'm going to say because a lot of where I do in fact have concern is around, it's, it's around that quality. So for example, 100-year-old buildings, inevitably you're going to need, uh, just like on a house, when you're building a condo, you know, there's going to be a moment when you need to replace the windows. You know, I live in a hundred year old house in this city. I had to replace my windows last year. Yeah. Um, that's not an unusual thing. So then if we take a, a tower, a condo tower, and then you think about the investments that are going to be needed over the lifespan of that building, the extent to which the building has good bones mm -hmm. is going to determine uh, how much longevity it has. And it's, really fascinating in the city because some of our buildings that have the best longevity, the best bones, are actually concrete structures that were built in the, uh, they were really built in the 60s and the 70s. Do you have an example um, of a building that you sort of see as built in the 60s or 70s that's really stood the test of time? That well, you know, really right interesting building is the old Four Seasons on Bay Street, yep. just north of Bloor Street, yep. which is currently being transitioned from a hotel into residential condominiums. To me, that's uh, an example of a good adaptive reuse. It's a fascinating example of using that embedded energy even when the lifespan of that existing building for its existing use has, has transitioned. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it raises the question around our buildings, and I believe we need to be understanding our buildings and the infrastructure and their longevity as an important part of creating a sustainable city. Now, you've probably had this question a lot, but I'll ask it again. Is there a condo bubble in Toronto? What's your take on that question? Well, you know, I only get asked that question 50 times a day. Uh, <laughs> I get asked that question all the time. Um, and I always, and I, I don't believe we have a condo bubble. Um, and it's kind of funny because if you look back in reporting about Toronto's condo market, people have been saying we have a bubble for, I don't know, 15 years now, uh, which I think is quite at fascinating, least, yeah. at least. Uh, you know, at what point does the bubble burst, or maybe it's not really a bubble after all. Um, I'm not concerned that we have a condo bubble only because we have very high occupancy rates and because uh, we have a tremendous amount of growth in our region. So if we were building, but our region wasn't growing, I would be very concerned. So we add approximately 40,000 people to the city every year, 100,000 people to the region every year. Yes. 
Um, so there's a tremendous amount of demand for the housing stock that we are in fact building. Uh, the, you get a bubble when there's the, when there's a gap between that demand and what you're actually building, and right. and we don't have that gap now. Does that mean prices will will flux won't fluctuate? Well, no, but I think fluctuations in pricing is very different from a bubble. A bubble is something that pops. It goes right. poof and it's gone. It sort of disappears. The market disappears. Will there be corrections and justifications in our market? Uh, there will always continue to be. I think that's a normal part of the um, the pace between building and, and occupancy and growth. It, it tends to ebb and flow. But is that a bubble? Absolutely not. We don't have a bubble and I don't think we've had one. When you travel... Uh, with your work and you speak to people in different countries in different cities around the world, what are people saying about Toronto? What, what are they sort of envious of Toronto and what are they, what misconceptions do people have about Toronto? So it's, it's a great question uh, in part because I spoke at an international conference last week and there was a planner from the UK who had never been to Toronto. He came to Toronto um, prior to heading to the conference and the city sort of blew his mind. He was just like, wow, couldn't believe what he saw going on here. Uh, most people from around the world simply just don't believe the growth that we have until they see it with their own eyes. They come here and in some ways... We are so frustrated by our traffic congestion and we're so frustrated by all the construction going on in the city that it's difficult for us to pull back mm -hmm. and to see right. this is part of an incredible transformation that our city is undergoing right now and it's very, very exciting. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's very annoying, but it's very, very exciting. It's a good problem to have. It's a great problem to have. You know, I was in Buffalo recently and I have to tell you, my heart was breaking uh, in Buffalo because I can tell you, there's no traffic congestion, and there's no pedestrians, and there's not and a lot most, of yeah, nightlife. Probably most and U.S. cities, right? Most U.S. cities, other than a few rarefied U.S. cities, that is in fact the case. And it made me profoundly grateful for the growth that we see. So I think the biggest misconception is people don't really appreciate the magnitude of the transformation we're undergoing. You know, we say, yes, Toronto's the fastest growing city in North America, wah, wah, wah. But people get here and they go, holy smokes. It's incredible how quickly this city is, city is changing. And from my perspective, that's an opportunity for us to kind of you know, grab that bull by the horns and say, hey, let's wrestle this growth to the ground and yeah. ensure that we're the outcome of all this growth is going to be a fabulous, inspiring, livable, inclusive, green city. That's great. Um, so is Toronto, what direction are we heading? Are we becoming the next New York? Are we, is this Manhattanization effect that some people talk about a real thing? Well, um, you know, I'm not sure if the Manhattan effect, when people talk about it, is there a good thing or a bad thing. In general, people in Toronto do love New York City. I think most people in this city admire New York City. Uh, but there's not that many people who live in Toronto who want to live in New York City. Uh, or, so, can to. Or, can <laughs> or, or can afford to. Or can afford to. So I think that, you know, I'm, I'm never quite sure what those statements mean. The reality is the vast majority of our land base in the city of Toronto is uh, low-density suburban and is going to stay that way. And so I think the way we're changing and transforming is actually quite different from Manhattan. Just because we have lots of tall buildings going up currently doesn't mean that uh, 
I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't really see that as being what our future looks like in part as well. We are a massive land area. I think we're five times the size of Manhattan, 613 square kilometers, most of which is suburban. And we have a profound opportunity to be transforming our avenues into mid-rise communities, into mid-rise neighborhoods. Uh, that's a, you know, that's a very different built form from what you see, for example, in, in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. you know, just outside of Manhattan. So we're building tall towers. There's lots of good things New York does, arts, culture, food, uh, entertainment that I think we're beginning to do too, that adds to a real vibrancy in the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, maybe I'm too close. I, I see the differences. All right. So, um, let me paint you a picture. You probably heard, you're familiar with this story that, you know, 10 years ago in the city, we were building probably, in terms of new housing, around three low-rise homes for every one high-rise condo. And now, today, 10 years later, that uh, relationship has pretty much flipped. Where we're building about three condos for every one house. And so we're seeing massive shortages of inventory on the uh, low-rise uh, resale market, and we're seeing a growing amount of inventory, you could say, um, in the high-rise market. And the high-rise market, the, the unit sizes tend to be getting smaller and smaller. So families, at least what I'm seeing as a real estate agent, families are really being pinched out of the low-rise market, but yet there's not um, a great number of alternatives in the high-rise market for families. So I don't know if you thought about that or you talk about that at the city in terms of what you're planning, but how do you look at that problem how do you see the city developing over the next 20 years to accommodate families? It just happened in the past couple of years where the downtown core, the condo market, is growing faster than the suburban market in the region. And that's a really significant transition. One of the reasons that's happened is because of the Places to Grow Act and the green belt surrounding the region, which in fact limited the amount of suburban sprawl and has driven the growth into already existing built up urban areas. Well, when you're building in areas that are already built, you're not building single family homes. You're really trying to squeeze a lot more out of your land value. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you start to see, the first transition that you see is to semis, then rows, towns, and then you start moving into mid-rise buildings and then eventually, eventually towers. And you see that transition taking place across the region. Uh, I believe this is a good thing um, because I think that uh, 20 years from now when um, we will continue to live off the uh, fresh food grown in our green belt, we will, our children will turn to us and they'll thank us, uh, particularly as um, energy costs rise and the cost of transporting you know, strawberries from California starts to become an absurdity. Mm -hmm. The fact that we can actually grow food in our own region will only become more and more critical and more and more important. Uh, and access to clean water is a really critical part of that as well. So I see it as a necessary transition. The next question becomes is if we know it's not desirable to sprawl on indefinitely, if we know, if, if we can agree to that as, as a, a general consensus, then the question becomes, how do we create livable community environments in 
a housing form that is different than what we may perceive to be as a traditional housing form. And it's important to remember that sprawl itself was an outcome of really uh, what was highly subsidized following World War II. Um, highly subsidized, and we're, deter we're, we're learning that it's not a very sustainable land form. So we didn't quite have it mastered with that approach to family housing. So we're still exploring now and trying to figure that out. One of the things we're doing in city planning, and I held a round table about a month ago on this topic, is this question of raising families in the urban core. Because in the context of a planning study we're doing in the densest parts of the city, part of what we've learned is that we, in fact, have a mini baby boom. We do. We have <laughs> a mini okay. baby boom going on in the downtown core. And as those families, as their children begin to grow, they're asking a very important question. Where am I going to live? How am I going to afford housing in the core? Because guess what? I sort of like it down here. Exactly. I don't actually yeah. want to move out of the city or move out to Vaughan and have a two-hour commute every day. Thanks very out, much. Or even out to Riverdale or Danforth. Exactly. Or even out just a little bit. And so the good news is we already understand this and we have an excellent model in St. Lawrence neighborhood. We did this back in the 70s. In St. Lawrence neighborhood, we created a fabulous mixed-use community with schools, with daycares, with public spaces and parks for children to play. In, and that model of a neighborhood has proven to be a wonderful, brilliant success. A brilliant success. So we can actually point to that as an example of what we need to do more of. The challenge that we have, we need more family units in our condos. We are requiring, in last week I had two projects that we moved through the approvals process. Both of those projects we've secured 10% three-bedroom units. The problem is, just because we secure them at the planning level doesn't mean they're going to be affordable for families. And so this is a really important exactly. question that we're continuing to work through. One of the reasons why it's tricky and tricky for families in the downtown or in urban places is because the cost of housing gets so high. So we're continuing to do a lot more work in that area. We're looking at incentives. Uh, we're talking to the development industry. Uh, this month, I'm participating on a roundtable on affordable family housing that's being hosted by um, CHMC. And we're collaborating them precisely because we see this as a critical, critical question that we need to unlock. There's a huge transformation that's taking place all over the east side of the downtown. Could you talk to us about that, and in particular, the revitalization of Regent Park? Sure. Well, Regent Park's a really interesting story in this city, in part because Regent Park, when it was first built out as a neighborhood, was in fact Victorian row houses. Then came revitalization in the 50s and 60s, which resulted in closing off the grid uh, wiping out all of those homes and building a built form, the tower in the park model that was meant to really be an ideal community living model. And it turned out to be a terrible model. Um, the buildings were situated on the properties in such a way that they created a lot of dead spaces that were unsafe disconnecting the streets from the rest of the street grid rather than making it a quiet utopia, made it a dangerous environment. So now we're at the next iteration of Regent Park, which is reconnecting the street grid, 
um, creating a mixed-use community where there's a diversity of incomes and a diversity of different housing types and really increasing the choice. Great amenities like Daniel Spectrum, the new community center, the park which is being built right now with community gardens are all adding the community-based amenity to really create a strong, connected community. So Regent Park's a really interesting example of a master-planned community that's gone through several iterations, and I think it's very clear that uh, this last iteration is going to hit the mark. And really, it's uh, wouldn't you agree? It is a bit. I mean, it's we're only a few years into it now, but it, what's been done so far is a big success. I mean, it's, absolutely, it's working great so far, and it's only about halfway done. How, absolutely. How do you see now? There's so much going on the east side. If you can touch on briefly, Regent Park, West Onlands. There's a lot happening in Corktown. All the, these neighborhoods on the east side are really starting to blend together, and and the east side is really changing a lot, isn't it? How's the city? Um, how's the city planning for? all that development that's happening there. Well, you know, side. it's important to know that what's happening on the east end of the city is um, an outcome over over 20 years worth of planning work. There's been a tremendous amount of analysis, due diligence, plans generated, community consultation process that really, you know, we're living at a very exciting moment because we're seeing that all rise out of the ground right. and come to fruition. And the West Onlands is a fascinating, fascinating model, in part because there's a very generous public realm. Corktown Common is a very important stormwater management feature and also a brilliant, beautiful, beautiful park. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've also been able to expedite the building of the West Onlands by tying it in with the Athletes Village for the Pan Am Games. So it's a really beautiful example of many, many years of work. There are many hands that have touched that project. You can talk to almost any planning consultant in the city and they will tell you the time. They worked, they, on, they worked on it. They worked on it at one point or yeah. another. Oh, that was my project. Yeah, I just had someone say to me the other day, I was presenting it and someone said, oh yeah, 20 years ago I created the block structure for West Onlands and I was like, good God, you were involved too? You know, like, it, but, but in, in many ways that's kind of a, a, it's a beautiful story about our city and a beautiful story about the expertise in the city and it's now coming to fruition and I think that's, uh, and, and what's been built already, you know, go to Underpass Park. Underpass Park is fabulous. It's world class. I had someone approach me at a conference last week uh, after I gave a keynote and say, why didn't you talk about Underpass Park? And I said, well, you know, it's a whole city. I can't get everything in. And he said, but Underpass Park is just this incredible model of how you can build under existing structures. And I said, hey, I don't disagree with you. Uh, so the world is sort of taking note, I think, for some of the great work that we're doing in the East End. That's great. Um, thank you very much for your time today, Jennifer. Really appreciate it. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to find you online or, or otherwise? How can people reach you? There's a few great ways to find me. One is on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Jen underscore Keysmat. Uh, that's a good way to find me. Another great way to find me is uh, you can find the things that I'm saying on my blog, which is ownyourcity.ca. Uh, and then for more traditional matters, uh, it's very easy to find me by calling 311 and just asking for the chief planner, and they'll put you straight through to my office. That's great. Well, very generous offer. I'm sure some people will take you up on that. Um, and thank you again for your time today, Jennifer. Hopefully we can have you again on the podcast soon. My pleasure. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jennifer Keysmat, the chief planner of the City of Toronto. For all the show notes on this episode, head on over to truecondos.com slash Jennifer. 
If you like the show, please leave me a review. They are greatly appreciated. And there will be plenty more great interviews being added to this podcast each and every week. So I look forward to bringing you more episodes like this one. So until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.